Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Camden Hutchison, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of British Columbia Peter A. Allard School of Law. We will discuss his articles, Corporate Law Federalism in Historical Contexts, Comparing Canada and the United States, which will be published in the McGill Law Journal, and The Patriation of Canadian Corporate Law, which will be published in the University of Toronto Law Journal. So welcome to the podcast, Camden. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I really enjoyed reading these articles, uh, in part because before reading them, I knew next to nothing about Canadian corporate law, despite being moderately familiar with with U.S. corporate law. So I was wondering if you could share kind of a, a general overview for, for listeners who may also be less than familiar with Canadian corporate law as to sort of how it differs from U.S. corporate law, uh, both structurally and, and substantively. Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll, I'll start out with the, the structural differences. So from an institutional perspective, um, well, I guess I should, you know, before I get into that, I should say the, the bottom line is that corporate law in Canada and the U.S. are quite similar. Uh, so I guess that should probably be the starting point. So the similarities are, are greater than the differences. But from an institutional perspective, probably the biggest difference is that uh, in the United States, of course, each state has its own uh, corporate law statute and its own body of corporate law. Uh, in Canada, it's similar. Each province and also each territory has its own uh, corporation statute and its own body of corporate law. But in addition to that, and unlike the United States, there's also a federal incorporation statute. So there's something called the Canada Business Corporations Act, which is a federal law in Canada, which business people who live anywhere in Canada can use to incorporate their businesses. And a lot of people do use that. So it's similar, but slightly different in that you have um, a sort of federal system where you're, you have different provincial corporate laws, but then you, in addition to that, have a federal corporate statute, unlike the United States. So um, that's probably the biggest institutional difference. Um, in terms of substance, again, quite similar. Um, I'm, I'm actually from the United States, so I, I taught myself Canadian corporate law uh, mm. about two years ago, um, you know, sort of in preparation for, for beginning my first uh, professor job at UBC, and it was relatively easy. So I would say about 90% of the concepts and the principles are the same. Um, the 10% that's different is, is quite interesting. So probably some of the biggest differences are, um, first off in Canada, the conceptualization of fiduciary duties is a bit different. Um, and so comparing it to the United States, and when I say the United States for purposes of this conversation, I really just mean Delaware because that's the that's the, the state corporate law that I'm the most familiar with in the United States. And I think that that's often used as sort of a stand-in uh, for U.S. corporate law. But in Delaware, you know, given the Revlon line of cases in the 1980s and then some of the more, some of the more recent cases that have come out of Delaware, um, there's you – know, the fiduciary duties of the board of directors um, seem to be owed primarily to shareholders. So there's this sort of paradigm of – shareholder value maximization, um, which is, you know, it's subject to debate to an extent, but that's, that's sort of the, I, I think it's fair to say is kind of the dominant paradigm that people often use kind of talking about fiduciary duties in the United States is that directors owe a duty to their shareholders to uh, maximize the corporation's profits and maximize 
uh, the value accruing to shareholders. Um, in Canada, it's definitely different. Um, so there's a couple of cases, the most famous of which being the what's known as the BCE case that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, which said that no, um, directors' fiduciary duties are not owed uh, to shareholders per se. They're owed to, quote unquote, the corporation. Uh, and the corporation um, you know, explicitly includes uh, a wide variety of different stakeholders. So it include, you know, the corporation includes not only the shareholders' interest, but also creditors, employees, consumers, members of the community, uh, the environment, government interest. So it's a, a much broader conception of uh, fiduciary duties. Um, some other differences are in Canada, you have something that's called the oppression remedy, which is, uh, it was originally designed to be a shareholder remedy for minority shareholders. Um, but it again, you know, may, may include other groups as well. It's a very, very powerful, uh, remedy that minority shareholders can use if they're being oppressed or they're being treated unfairly. Um, also, uh, shareholders have more of an ability to call, meetings to, you know, fire and replace the board of directors. Uh, and there's some other details that I, I'm not going to kind of belabor the point, but overall minority shareholders have more power under Canadian law than they do under Delaware law. So it's, it's more empowering and more protective to minor, minority shareholders. So some of the, those are some of the biggest substantive differences. Um, one other, one other institutional difference, which I, I probably should have mentioned, and I just reminded myself talking about the BCE case is that the Supreme court of Canada um, actually does play an important role in corporate law, like unlike the United States, uh, where the U.S. Supreme Court is not really involved in corporate law. That's more of a state law matter. Uh, given the sort of different structure of the Canadian judicial system, the Supreme Court of Canada actually does have binding authority to uh, decide issues of corporate law. So again, that's another kind of institutional difference between the two countries. Yeah. So one of the, the things I thought was really interesting about the first paper, uh, the comparative paper was, was how you talked about how it, it seems like almost U.S. corporate law and Canadian corporate law converged in many respects in very similar places, but, but got there through very different paths. And I, I was wondering if you could kind of just sketch out the path of kind of the development of U.S. corporate law for listeners so they can better understand how it sort of differed from what happened in Canada. Yeah, sure. So for purposes of my research, or at least the, the time periods that I focus on, I mean, the kind of big picture story of American corporate law is it's state law, obviously. And in the late 1800s, so over 100 years ago, um, the US economy was was developing very rapidly. And state corporate law uh, was a lot different than it is today in the sense that um, there was a real concern among the American public, you know, throughout all the states with the power of corporations or concentrated economic power more generally. So there is a real, a real fear, a real political fear of the power of corporations and state corporation law was often uh, used as a vehicle for suppressing corporations or for limiting their power. So um, you know, corporate law allowed corporations to be formed, but also played very, very tight restrictions on the size of corporations, the business activities of corporations, uh, M&A activity, 
combining, right? So there's a very, very, very strong antitrust component to state corporate law, which doesn't really exist anymore. So that's something a lot of people don't appreciate. So most of the states had really robust antitrust protections built into their corporate law. And what happened is there is a historical phenomenon referred to as the Great Merger Movement around the turn of the century. So late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, where there was a a very, very um, rigorous uh, movement towards consolidation of businesses in the United States. So, So basically what happened is a very, very short period of time, the American economy was sort of transformed uh, from an economy characterized by a very large number of small businesses to a relatively small number of very large businesses. So this was kind of the rise of the trusts uh, in the United States. And what happened was that because state corporate law limited the ability of companies to consolidate and to form these monopolistic trusts, um, a couple of states, uh, most famously New Jersey and then Delaware, um, sort of entrepreneurially relaxed their corporate laws and got rid of all these antitrust restrictions in order to attract corporations. So all the corporations at this time were sort of channeled towards first New Jersey and then Delaware uh, in order to form these kind of massive consolidations. And that was really the origin of the Delaware model of corporate law. And then Delaware was so successful in attracting corporations that pretty much all the other states in the union um, also liberalized their laws. Uh, and all of the you know, strict antitrust restrictions that were previously in corporate law were kind of washed out. And so today, you know, corporate law per se, state corporate law generally doesn't have much in the way of antitrust content. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how, yeah. I mean, that's, so that's kind of how things developed in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was really interesting how contingent the move to Delaware seems to have been. I mean, it was like one historical moment where kind of New Jersey lost its mojo, as it were, and and just couldn't get it back after that. That that you know, it seems like that that whole story could have shaken out so so differently. And it was really interesting to me, you know, the sort of the way you told that story of sort of laws intended to accomplish one goal pushing corporations in in an unexpected direction maybe a direction that should have been expected but that doesn't seem like people were intending like you know sort of the efforts to sort of prevent cartelization and and sort of business like price fixing uh agreements led to the sort of consolidation as a way of kind of avoiding prohibitions on horizontal conduct and so on. I just, it was a really, really nicely, nicely told version of the story, uh, I, I thought. And one that illuminated really helpfully for me, sort of how differently things played out in in Canada. Because, I mean, especially given the sort of um, kind of stakeholder interests that Canadian corporate law seems to recognize today. I mean, the, the story you tell of, of Canadian corporate law is actually kind of surprisingly like liberal in, in the British sense. And in, in that it seems like it was actually much more permissive than us law, at least in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the story that I just told about, uh, the movement towards New Jersey and then Delaware in the United States, it was, you know, that movement towards Delaware, it's, you know, it's often characterized as a race to the bottom, right? Which is uh, sort of a loaded term, but it actually is descriptive in the sense, you know, if you consider, 
you know, liberalization of the law at the bottom. It, it, is, it was sort of a race to that point. So it's, it's accurate in that sense. Um, however, in Canada, uh, you didn't have the same phenomenon at all. So in Canada, you had, at least in theory, you had the possibility of provincial competition similar to what you saw in the United States. So in the United States, the states were actively competing against each other to attract corporations. So they were continuously lowering the bar and eliminating these antitrust provisions in order to, to attract corporations. Uh, in Canada, because you had a, a somewhat similar federal system, you had at least the possibility of provincial competition where provinces could be competing with each other. But that competitive dynamic never developed because Canadian company law at that time, so in the late 1800s, uh, was much more closely based on the English model of company legislation, which was, as you said, quite liberal, right, in the laissez-faire sense, right? So there's very, very little restrictions on what corporations could do, uh, whereas state corporate law was much more populist in the, um, in the kind of Jacksonian sense, right, really sort of limiting uh, the power of economic elites. Uh, Canadian law was just kind of like anything goes, right? It's like, yeah, you want to start a business, go for it. I mean, it was actually very, it was explicitly pro-business. If you look at the legislative yeah. history, they were really trying to encourage the formation of businesses and they were not putting any restrictions on what businesses were doing. And part yeah, of, it, yeah, no, no, go ahead. I mean, it really, it's What was fascinating to me is that like, almost like at the same time that American law was becoming increasingly like an effort toward regulation and sort of the embodiment of antitrust concerns. Like it sounds like Canada was actually liberalizing at that moment, even more like making it even easier to create a national corporation and, and even like, you know, encouraging people to form nationalized corporations with kind of liberalized provisions and so on. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that has to do with kind of the differences in the political environment in the two countries. Um, so in the United States, uh, you had the populist movement uh, in the in the late 1800s, um, at which, you know, kind of uh, transitioned a bit into uh, into the progressive era. Uh, but basically, you had this this real concern among uh, American voters and also among the American political elite of limiting the power of these, you know, these giant corporations, which were really unprecedented at the time. So it, it's important to understand like how, how quickly these giant corporations arose. Like it was a very dramatic change in the structure of the American economy where just sort of like almost overnight, you really had that, you know, we take it for granted today, right? We have like Google and Facebook and Apple, like giant corporations, you know, we're sort of nonchalant about, the idea of just sort of giant corporations controlling the economy. I mean, that's something that we've gotten used to. Uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, this was something that was very, very troubling uh, to a majority of Americans, for sure. Uh, and you saw that expressed in the politics of the time. In Canada, you had similar political concerns. So you definitely did have the same, um, these same kind of populist uh, concerns with concentrated economic power, and you definitely had the same issues with giant corporations controlling, um, you know, major industries in the Canadian economy. But I think there's a couple of reasons why the the policy response was a lot different in Canada. Uh, one, I think Canada was at the time was a less developed country than the United States economically. So I think there was a little bit more, right? So the, like policy was oriented more towards developing the economy and encouraging business 
just because Canada was a, a less wealthy country at that time, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, Canadian politics was at that time, and to a certain extent remains, uh, just less democratic than American politics. So like a, a lot, like the Canadian Senate is not a democratic institution. Um, even in the House of Commons, uh, there is a little bit less, uh, you know, kind of responsiveness to populist concerns that were coming. And they, they, they definitely were there. So a lot of agriculturalists in Western Canada had the exact same kind of populist concerns uh, that people in the Midwestern United States had. But it, it just never was really expressed in policy terms. So, you know, in Ottawa, the people who were making policy were frankly a lot more sympathetic to the economic and the financial elite that were forming these giant corporations. Um, mm. and, and you see that you see that quite clearly in, in how corporate law unfolded in the two countries. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if there was also an element of sort of long-term familiarity with some really large trust-like corporation, like the long-term role of the Hudson's Bay company, for example. And, and, and in addition, it struck me from your paper that that maybe the sort of the relative novelty of Canada as an independent nation state and sort of trying to legitimize itself as a place for foreign companies to do business and do business with may have influenced the willingness to sort of manage corporate business activity through, through corporate law. Yeah. And I, I think that that might have a little bit to do again with, I sort of described in the article as kind of the, the sort of peripheral status of Canada is sort of being, you know, it was part of the British Empire at this time. Um, so it was very, very reliant on on English investment capital uh, to, you know, finance economic development, to finance uh, business in Canada. But it was also, you know, the United States was also a very important trading partner. So, so Canada was at this time kind of in between the United States and England. And a lot of policymakers in Canada were looking to both countries Um as sources of investment and sources of capital. So there was a real active effort on the part of um, Canadian legislators to attract investment from both England and the United States, where I think the United States, because because the United States had a much larger and more self-sufficient economy, you know, people were not as concerned about, you know, sort of basically competing uh, for capital coming from other countries. So I think that that's part of the explanation as well. Yeah. So, so in your paper, you observe as well that, you know, one of the reasons for kind of many of the similarities between Canadian and U.S. law today is that Canada, in fact, sort of revised its national corporation statutes, uh, in what was it, the 1980s, I think it was, to sort of along U.S. or maybe even explicitly Delaware, Delaware lines. Is, is that right? So it's yeah, I think it was it's the 1970s. So there was a uh, a statute, a federal statute uh, was passed uh, called the Canada Business Corporation Act. It was adopted in in 1975, and this was a re- I mean Canada, the federal government of Canada already had a corporation statute, but this was just a major revision to that. And that Canada Business Corporation Act was self consciously a move away from the traditional model of English company legislation toward a more U.S. model. And so the drafters of this federal act, uh, they were quite transparent in that they'd look, you know, we're looking to the United States for inspiration in revising corporate legislation in Canada. They actually didn't look to Delaware. Um, they were actually more influenced by the uh, the Model Business Corporation Act 
uh, and the New York Corporation Act and the Illinois uh, Business Corporation Act than Delaware. So it's actually not really a Delaware style statute, uh, but it, mm. it did it did adopt a lot of the kind of American drafting conventions. Um, certainly the kind of me- the mechanics of how you form corporations, things like that. Uh, so from a legislative standpoint in the 1970s, you had this federal law, which kind of moved more towards the United States and this, this federal act, which is important uh, in its own right, the Canada Business Corporations Act, it was since copied by a majority of the provinces. So a majority of the provinces in Canada now have corporation statutes that are very, very, very similar to the Canada Business Corporations Act. So this this model has kind of spread throughout Canada, and there's been a bit of a standardization of corporate law. Um, you know, I teach in British Columbia, which is actually an outlier. British Columbia has a statute that is still based on the older English model. Um, so there is there is some variation uh, among the statutes in Canada, but you have seen a general shift towards what I would characterize as, as a more U.S. style statute. Cool. Well, that seems like a great transition into your other uh, paper, the patriation of Canadian corporate law. So, so maybe you could just say when you when you when you use the word patriation, what do you mean by that, and how does it relate to the nature of the project that you're taking on in that paper? Yeah. So, so the word patriation uh, has a specific meaning in the Canadian context. And I use in the title as sort of a it's sort of a play on the traditional use of the term, but patriation in Canada refers to constitutional patriation. So the patriation of the Canadian constitution, which is sort of a, a, a long process uh, that culminated in 1982 uh, with the, the constitution act in 1982, uh, whereby, you know, Canada sort of became a fully independent country, um, you know, completely distinct from, from, from England politically. So in 1982, uh, there is the, you know, the adoption of the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And also the, the Parliament of England no longer had any authority to revise or make laws that applied to Canada. So, so 1982 is referred to as the culmination of patriation. And that's kind of when Canada really became its own, its own, it's a, you know, truly sovereign nation, um, 100% independent from England. So, so in Canadian constitutional law, uh, which I remain a bit of a novice at, uh, but the term patriation is um, is you know one of the one of the core concepts that you encounter in Canadian constitutional law. So I sort of borrowed that term uh, a little bit you know cheekily and applied it to the corporate law context because in the second article uh, that I guess we're talking about now, I sort of describe how over the past 150 years or so, um, so you know from Confederation in 1867 up until about the present day. There's been this sort of long process whereby Canada has uh, shifted from being a country in which uh, corporate law or company law, as it used to be called, was very, very influenced by English law to really uh, uh, an independent country from a corporate law standpoint that has its own autonomous, self-referential, self-contained body of corporate law that is uh, distinctly and domestically Canadian and doesn't really rely on English law at all anymore. And that's kind of the process that I describe uh, in the second article project. Yeah. So it struck me as the findings were a bit surprising, you know, I mean, a given sort of the, 
the sort of historical close relationship between Canada and England, but even more so given the sort of explicit and intentional adoption of, as you say, U.S. corporate law forms in in 1975 into the national Canadian corporations law. So, so maybe you could describe sort of the the study that you did and you know kind of what results you were expecting and what kind of results you ended up seeing. Right. So so in the second project, um, it, it's really a statistical study. So what I ended up doing is I was trying to kind of track this process of decreasing English influence and increasing Canadian influence, and also what I assumed would be increasing American influence. So kind of the, the genesis of this project is, you know, in my mind, I kind of had this assumption that as Canadian corporate law has become less and less English over time, it's also become more and more American, uh, or it's become more Americanized. And the reason I assumed that was because of the story I just told about the, um, the promulgation of the CBCA uh, and the influence of American law uh, at the statutory level. And I thought that that would, that would uh, be influential at the jurisprudential level as well. So in my study, it's a statistical study where I'm essentially analyzing citation statistics. So it's kind of like a giant citation study. What I did is um, I essentially counted and identified the citations appearing in substantially all appellate level corporate law decisions in Canada over the past 150 years, uh, which is like over 2000 decisions. Um, if you, if you screen out the decisions that don't have any citations at all, you still end up with over 1400 decisions. So I have this basically giant data set where I have citation data for, you know, all this, you know, 1400 plus decisions. And I, you know, kind of track country of origin of these citations to try to measure changes in national influences. So sort of decreasing English influence over time, um, what I assume to be increasing American influence over time, particularly after the 1970s, exactly because of the revisions to um, the, the statutes in Canada. Uh, and then also uh, what I assume would be increasing domestic citations. And what I mean by that is, is Canadian appellate courts citing Canadian courts. So I thought there'd be you know fewer and fewer English citations, more Canadian citations, and more American citations. Uh, and I was surprised to find that there are um, increasing Canadian citations and there are decreasing English citations, but the level of American citations throughout the entire time period is very, very, very low. There are very few American citations at any point in the time series. They are definitely not increasing. If anything, they're decreasing. Uh, there is no uptick in you know citations to U.S. law or citations to American state law after the 1970s, which was very surprising to me. I had been under this assumption that Canadian law has becoming kind of more and more um, influenced by the United States. And when I was doing this project, I had, this was a surprising result, and I was actually a little bit afraid that, you know, maybe my assumptions were just the product of, you know, my bias, you know, being an American who teaches in Canada, I thought, oh, well, maybe I just am assuming that the United States is the center of the world, and I'm just being a parochial American. But actually, no, I shared this research with, um, you know, corporate law professors in Canada who are who are actually real Canadians, unlike me, and they were all equally surprised. So they also mm. uh, assumed that there'd be, you know, kind of increasing uh, Americanization, and I think part of that is some of the some of the canonical 
corporate law cases that you would teach in like a business organizations course, for example, that show up in a corporation's textbook. There are, um, you know, a, a non-trivial number of citations to Delaware law, uh, particularly the the Revlon line of cases, so the kind of the famous Delaware takeover cases, and that might give you the impression that American law is is influential. But when you actually, uh, you know, kind of dig into the statistics and survey all the appellate level cases systematically, you find out that the total number of American citations is actually very very low, uh, and citations to countries other than um, Canada and England, and the U.S. So, kind of like other Commonwealth countries or other, you know, continental European countries like France. I mean, there's almost none. There's almost zero. So, there's seems to be very little like outside influence coming into Canada, uh, at least in the corporate law area. Yeah. So, in in your paper, you do both a kind of quantitative study counting these citations with this. Really, I think, you know, especially given your framing of it, kind of surprising and fascinating result. You also do what I would characterize as kind of a qualitative study as well, sort of like looking at some kind of case study examples of decisions at different points, points in time. And I wonder if you think you can draw any, any kind of inferences or sort of thoughts about the meaning of the quantitative study from that qualitative look? I mean, does that, did that help you kind of flesh out your thinking about why the quantitative study seemed to tell the story that it did? Yeah. Yeah. It helped me flesh out my thinking. And also the reason I included those, those qualitative case studies is that also, I think it helps, it helps communicate to the reader a bit, uh, kind of what's going on in the statistics. So I have, I have three, three cases that I look at. They're, they're all cases from the Supreme Court of Canada, corporate law cases that I characterize as, um, you know, sort of representative case studies. They're not, they're, they're probably more illustrative than representative. Like they're not, I didn't choose them at random. I chose them because they kind of illustrate broader patterns that show up, uh, in the statistics. But the first case, um, the first case I talk about is a case called McCracken v. McIntyre, which is from the 1870s. And I use this case to show that, you know, in the, in the, in the 1870s, in the first couple of decades following Confederation, uh, Canadian corporate law was very dominated by English law, right? So in this case, McCracken v. McIntyre, um, fully 96% of all the citations in the Supreme Court's reasons, um, uh, and oh, just just instantly in Canada, courts issue reasons. They don't have opinions. So you don't talk about opinions mm. in Canada. You talk about reasons. Uh, but in the Supreme Court's reasons, uh, 96% of the citations are to English cases, not Canadian cases. So they're clearly relying very, very heavily on English law. And they also quite bizarrely, they're dealing with a Canadian company, a, a company that was formed under a Canadian statute. Uh, but they construe the company in terms of English company legislation. So they cite English legislation as if it were the relevant statute to apply to this company, <laughs> even though it's not, right? They just they just ignore the Canadian statute, basically, um, and and apply this English statute. So you see this very, very significant English influence, right? It's I sort of describe it as, you know, Canadian corporate law at this time was really just sort of English law kind of transplanted to North America. All right, so that's mm-hmm. in the 1870s. Then we flash forward to my second case study, which is a case called Soloway v. McLaughlin, which is from the 1930s. And in this, you really see the progression towards uh, a little bit less English influence and a mo- more of a domestic Canadian influence. So in this case, you see a much more balanced picture 
um, with the Supreme Court of Canada. I think about two thirds of their citations are to English cases, which is still a lot. Um, but you know, a full third are to Canadian citations, and you sort of see the process by which uh, Canadian trial court decisions, so citations to Canadian trial courts, are starting to percolate upward uh, into um, into the appellate level uh, reasons that are being issued. Uh, and I guess you know one thing I should probably say here it might be a, a, a bit too difficult to contextualize, uh, particularly for for non non Canadians listening to this. But one thing that's important to keep in mind is that up until 1949, the final court of appeals in Canada was the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was an mm. English court comprised of English judges which sat in England. So it was sort of an odd arrangement where the final court of appeals in Canada was actually an English court in England. So there was a Supreme Court of Canada, but you could appeal from the Supreme Court of Canada to the Privy Council, which sat in London. Um, was 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 that something that happened very often, or was it kind of an anomaly? Uh, you know, it's I, I I guess I honestly don't really have any frame of reference to tell you like how often it was. I would say in my I only looked at I only looked at corporate law. And sort of in my corporate law database, there's probably like 50 or so privy council opinions, mm. which is a, I, I think is a lot, right? I mean, that, that seems like a lot to me. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah. So I guess probably a good answer to your question is, yeah, it wasn't rare. Like it was, it was definitely uh, an avenue of appeal uh, that, that litigants could use. So you could, you know, you send your case up to the privy council and the privy council essentially didn't really, like they were not very attentive to legal developments in Canada and they didn't really, they didn't seem to really care very much. So they would just sort of like issue, <laughs> issue these opinions that were based completely in English law. And then they would be sent back down to Canada and the Canadian courts would have to, you know, have to kind of internalize these very, very English focused decisions. So anyways, the, uh. the Privy Council situation that went away in 1949. So um, the statute of Westminster was in 1931. And then there was kind of a long process. And then finally, after World War II, the appellate jurisdiction of the Privy Council ended in 1949, and the Privy Council no longer had the authority to to hear Canadian appeals. So the this is called 1949 is when the Supreme Court of Canada like really became the Supreme Court in Canada. Uh, it was the, the Court of Final Appeals. So, anyways, after that, uh, the English influence really starts to kind of fade away. And I in the paper I talk about, I think a big reason for that actually was the end of, of Privy Council jurisdiction. But anyway, mm. the last case I talk about is a very recent case, uh, Deloitte and Touche v. Livent, which was just from 2017. So this is a very recent case. In this case, you, you see uh, clearly that Canadian corporate law has become kind of the dominant framework that the, the justices of the Supreme Court are dealing with. However, Deloitte and Touche is – or I guess Livent is, is how it's normally called. Uh, the Livent case – is interesting in that fully a third of the citations in the Liven case are to English law, but the citations to English law are not corporate law citations; they're primarily tort law citations. So Liven mm-hmm. is sort of a weird case in that it's it's kind of like a quasi corporate law case, but it's also a kind of a quasi tort law case. And uh, the Supreme Court of Canada seems to rely very heavily on English law when they're dealing with the tort law issues that come up in the case, uh, but most of the corporate law issues. Are uh, are dealt with um, through the means of Canadian citations. So one of the things I kind of end the article on is I say that even though Canadian corporate law has become really, you know, it's it's been patriated, it's become you know fully you know almost 100% Canadian. I think other areas 
of law, particularly kind of um, the sort of common law areas of private law, like contract, torts, property, thing like that, they remain much more closely tied to English law. Um, and certainly from an American perspective, I think that like in, like Canadian contract law, Canadian tort law, the the residual English influence is a lot stronger in Canada uh, than it is in the United States. Is is my general impression? Although I'm I am not an expert in those areas of law, so I should probably be a bit careful about mm-hmm. what I say. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it seems like it's it's hard to be certain, but I wonder if you have kind of thoughts based on your research as to why the incorporation, the legislative incorporation of U.S. law, didn't result in Canadian courts looking to United States court decisions in a more robust way. I mean, were they still borrowing concepts and just didn't feel the need to refer to U.S. courts? Or had Canadian courts maybe kind of already incorporated many of those concepts in a common law sort of form prior to the the legislation? I mean, do you have any thoughts on on why that might have been? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the honest answer is I, I don't really know. Uh, that's the honest answer. I, I have sort of two two potential guesses, maybe. So one would be I think that there's one one would be substantive in the sense that I think that um, at least in certain respects, Canadian corporate law is substantively different than, for example, Delaware law. So I mentioned fiduciary duties, right? Fidu- the the concept of fiduciary duties in Canada is is different. It's broader. So the Delaware conception of fiduciary duties, I think, is more. Um, it, it's really kind of more uh, shareholder value oriented, um, at least under the Delaware jurisprudence. So it's relatively narrow. Fiduciary duties in Canada are much broader. So that's a substantive difference. Also, I mean, the oppression remedy is something that it's you know that doesn't exist under Delaware law. But it's a, a really important aspect of Canadian corporate law. So, like, obviously, you can't really cite you know, American cases, uh, you know, for a concept that doesn't, doesn't exist under American law. Um, so I think so part of it is explained by substantive differences, but I think there might be, uh, there might be another reason for the lack of U.S. citations. And this is a bit anecdotal. And I say this, this is just based on conversations I've had with practitioners and judges in Canada. So I've, I've talked about my research to practitioners and judges in Canada and and kind of gotten their reactions. And one of the things that they've told me is that from a practice standpoint, uh, litigators in Canada are often very reticent to cite American law because there's this idea, right? The Canadian lawyers are, you know, obviously not experts in American law and the, um, the uh, kind of the, the American system of sort of judicial federalism and the fact that there's kind of a, there's like a, you know, there's a, a system of federal courts and then there's 50 different state courts. And, you know, to people who are not, you know, trained in U.S. law, I think it's quite intimidating to figure out kind of like, well, why would you say, why would you cite what, like is citing, you know, uh, is citing like a Wyoming decision? Is that, equal, <laughs> is that equal to citing a Delaware decision or like, you yeah. know, what is a, what is a circuit court of appeal? Like, I don't, you know, like what are these things? Like, so they're, they're actually quite intimidated by that, which makes sense because I mean, if, if you didn't, you know, if you're not trained in the U S legal system, it's quite intimidating. Uh, and they're very reticent to cite American cases for that reason. And some people have told me there's also this idea that because the U S is such a big country and there's such a, a large volume of litigation that if you, if you want to start researching American law, you can find a case that will support anything you want, right? Like there is a case out there that will support <laughs> any concept, right? 
But but Canadian lawyers, like, they often don't really know. Like, they can find a case that will cite, you know, that will support what they want to say. But, you know, they, that might be a completely inappropriate case to cite, right? You know, that, that mm. might be a court that is, I don't know, it's not it's, – it's not relevant or, you know, it's not a prestigious court or something or they would look foolish by citing it. So they don't really know. So they're, they're reticent to cite that. So, I mean, that's a bit anecdotal, but several people have told me that. Uh, so mm. I, I suspected that that it may in fact be true. So that would be sort of a reason not to cite American cases, I guess, not only in corporate law, but in, in any area of law. Um, but, you know, take that, yeah. take that for what yeah. it's worth. <laughs> yeah. So Camden, I found both of these papers really fascinating and informative, and they've really piqued my, my interest in Canadian corporate law. And, and I'm wondering if, in, in closing, if you could talk a little bit about where you want to take this project next. I mean, do you think you can milk another paper out of your data set, which sounds like a fantastic piece uh, of work? Or do you have other thoughts about where you might like to go uh, in relation to your work in this area? Yeah, so I think that my probably the, the next project that I'm 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 in the early stages of right now is going to use the same data set. So I, I am going to you know milk it as you put it for a second project. Um, and what I'm going to do so so the 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 statistical study that we just talked about is really tracking national influences on Canadian law. So it's, you know, what countries in the world have influenced Canadian corporate law. Um, And I, and I, you know, I have a lot of statistics that are based on the national identities of the courts being cited, but I've also tracked the provincial identities and the different jurisdictional identities within Canada of the cases that are being cited by Canadian courts. So I want to do a similar study that analyzes interprovincial influences and also the relationship between the provincial uh, judicial systems and the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, which again is, is not quite analogous to the United States system. The, the, the role of the Supreme Court of Canada is a bit different than the role of the, the United States Supreme Court in the US, but kind of tracking um, the direction in which those influences flow and then maybe trying to tease out a bit um, to what extent do the provinces potentially compete with each other? Um, on a corporate law basis, the conventional wisdom is that they don't, uh, but I'd like to investigate that a little bit. Uh, certainly, are there certain provinces in Canada that are more or less influential, um, you know, even adjusting for the size of the economies of the provinces? Um, and there's not a lot of been research has been done in that. So in the U.S., obviously, there's a, a huge amount of scholarship on the role of Delaware in U.S. corporate law and kind of uh, you know, why Delaware is so influential uh, and how it sort of dominated U.S. corporate law. But there's very little research in Canada on the relationship of the provinces to each other and the relationship of the provinces to the Supreme Court of Canada and vice versa. Um, and so I have a lot of data that I can use that I think might illuminate some of those issues. So that's probably where my next project's going to go. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Camden. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's 8 o'clock, and here is Jack Dennett, brought to you by Imperial Oil. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Friday, the 18th of July, and after a long spell of dry, hot weather, we're starting to know now how the ancient mariner felt, because it seems each day we advise you to get ready for heat, humidity, and weather discomfort. 
Isolated thunderstorms could possibly develop this afternoon, but it's a bit difficult right now to track them down and let you know where they might land. The possibility of Metro getting a soaking, however, seems very remote. So we're to be simply sunny, hot, and humid today and tomorrow with blistering temperatures this afternoon. Our high for the day should be around 32, and that's pretty close to the 90 mark in Fahrenheit. And in a moment, we'll be back. Jack Dennett, as we all know, will not be back. That way he had of welcoming you each morning at 8 o'clock with the weather, as if he, Jack Dennett, was bringing it to you personally, will not be heard again. <laughs> 